Does the channel provide value? Focus on the foundation. I am a travel vlogger. It's always about communication. Build those partnerships. What are the problems that you solve for your clients? Just being ahead on the technological side of things. Leading an organization. You not only want to survive, but you want to thrive. They said it wouldn't last, and they said that you can't drive profitable and incremental revenue through the affiliate channel. But here we are, 20 years later, and the affiliate channel is alive and kicking and generating profitable revenue for thousands of retailers across the globe. Hi, I am Jamie Birch, your host of the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast, where we talk to some of the industry's best and brightest about their careers, about leadership, and about how to drive profitable revenue through the affiliate channel. Hello, and welcome to the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast. I am your host, Jamie Birch, uh, and I am the founder and CEO of JV Commerce, uh, your award-winning affiliate management agency. Uh, and we are about to celebrate our 18th year very, very shortly. Very excited about that. Uh, so today we have a great guest, Julia Hochstein. Uh, Julia has been in the industry for quite some time, but before I introduce her and the episode, I want to talk to you about a case study we just released. If you are looking uh, on for ways that you can rapidly grow your affiliate program, especially if you're launching, go to jbcommerce.com slash rapid. That's jbcommerce.com slash rapid. And here we talk about a, a brand that we recently launched with, exceeded their expectations, and exactly how we did that with our partners at Link Connector. Uh, that is a co-produced uh, uh, case study. Uh, we use their technology, our service and strategy, and both of us uh, with our client did exceptional work to really hit some awesome goals. So if you want to learn a little bit more about how we did that, uh, then definitely go over to jbcommerce.com slash rapid. Now, Julia, let me introduce her. Julia has been in the industry since about 2008. I've been doing this for quite a long time. She's currently the Senior Manager of Affiliate Marketing at Zorro uh, US. And Julie and I talk about a lot of awesome things. So we talk about the important aspects of an affiliate manager. Uh, we talk about how it's important to nurture and also close sales and how affiliate uh, you need to consider lifetime value and long-term relationships, but also about, we talk a lot about some of the problems with the affiliate space and not enough about what we really do well and how to specifically evaluate uh, different affiliate partnerships. Julia gives this awesome example of her shopping experience and how that is indicative of a lot of ways people use affiliate marketing uh, in their consumer shopping and how we need to look at it uh, as digital marketers. Uh, and I share a couple stories of how we tested the, uh, the validity of some of these partners. We talk about lots of stuff. We talk about the pay gap. Uh, and there's a really interesting aspect of this that I never thought about. I definitely want you to listen to. So I'm going to get out of the way. That Julia, thank you so much for joining us. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Julia Hochstein. All right, Julia Hochstein, thank you so much for joining me on the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast. I am so self-conscious about your name pronunciation now. Did I get it right? You got it right. You did it You did it well compared to my uh, my husband's family. It's actually hard for me 
because I'm a German major by uh, by trade. And so I want to pronounce it the real way and his whole family pronounces it Hochstein. So that's what I go with. Okay. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for joining. Really anxious to chat with you. I think we haven't, uh, I think we first met maybe in your Groupon days or CJ days. It's, it's been a while, but we haven't had a really great, a good time to sit and chat. Yeah, I think, um, I, I know I very, I know when I think I remember meeting you and it was at affiliate management days in San Francisco, five and a half years ago, six years ago, something like that. And so, um, I was there for my current company I had just started with them and I think Sarah Bundy introduced us. So there you go. Okay. I think it was Sarah Bundy, but I think it was at another event because I've never been to Maybe. AM days. I don't think I have. Really? No, I thought I could have sworn you did a, um, you did a whole, I thought you gave a great presentation because it resonated. That's why I remember because you gave a great presentation on your affiliate journey. And your Coldwater Creek days. Oh, maybe and it was. Needing to go in and say oh, okay. like the hard truths that had to be said or something to that effect is what resonated with me. Yeah, that was CJ. That was CJ. Was that I really? did a one of the, the presentations. I'm, okay. I think so. Yeah, I think so. It's been so long, and I've been to so many. So you may you may be totally right. Run I'm getting older now, so. Aren't we all? I mean, I have, you know, like we talked about earlier, I have my six month old at home. So, you know, it's just, yeah, my brain is mom brain right now. Totally, totally. And I wanted to chat about that. Lots changed. You have a, yeah. you have a little boy, a new little one, six months old. How has that all been? Oh, it's, it's something. Let me tell you, if there's any parents out there who have one child uh, currently who are going, you know what, it's been five and a half years, let's jump in and have another one. Um, cause that's what we did. And it has definitely been a different ride. It's almost like being a new parent because it's very difficult to reach back to that void of sleepless nights and remember exactly what you did, yeah. but you have some vague recollection of it. So it's, it's been great though. I love it. Yeah. You're fully out of diapers and then bam, diapers again. Uh, yes. 100%. Yeah. We, and I was a crunchy, I'm, I'm quasi crunchy granola mom. Um, so I, I baby wear and I have uh, cloth diapers for my first daughter, for my daughter. And we brought my son home and I'm like, yes, I have this stash of cloth diapers that I will use again. And just time just does not permit the way that I was hoping to. So he has been not in cloth the way that she was. And that's okay. That's the life we live. That's that's awesome. You know, we have four and we had uh, eight years, nine years in between number two and number three. So totally get the like this weird. We've done this before. But it's like deja vu kind of yeah. like I feel like we've done this. And by number four. Yeah. Number one, there was always like, what are we going to do? It's got to be perfect. Number four was dang near feral. Uh, and he was, he turned out to be just fine. Uh, so I, you tend to like get a little, you get busier and a little lax in, in how you raise them, I think. Yeah, 100%. I know that, um, my mom always jokes that she, so she was the baby of her family until she was seven years old. Um, and that meant a couple of things. One, her brothers and her brother and her sister got all the pictures taken by the time she was born, they had lost their camera. I mean, this was back in the sixties, so people weren't replacing them. Right. Then seven years later, her sister, her baby sister was born. And by that point, her family was like, well, we got to get a new camera and oh, look at this new baby. And it was almost like having a first child again. So my mom has this awkward 
Um, and, and she knows this. I've talked to her about it. And I'm like, she's got this awkward uh, personality of middle child syndrome, but also she was the baby of her family too, in some ways. And so it's a, a hilarious dichotomy yeah. for her um, that we like to like to make fun of her for. That's awesome. Well, lots, lots of stuff in common. Now tell me, how did you get started in affiliate marketing? What was your, what's your origin story? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I kind of alluded to a little bit of that at the top where I talked about uh, being a German major. I mean, what, how many German majors fall into affiliate? That's like clearly the path that you go when you get a German degree, right? You just, you go, I got a German degree. I'm going to go be an affiliate marketer. It goes hand in hand, like peanut butter and jelly. Um, no, but I, <laughs> I, I fell into it like everybody else, right? Like that's, that's what happened. Um, I graduated in, in 08, well, I graduated in 07, stayed in college an extra semester while I tried to figure out um, if I wanted to continue getting my master's or if I wanted to just go out and um, start working in the world. I made the choice to start working in the world um, so I could start paying off student loan debt and took whatever job would take me. And so I took a sales job at CareerBuilder. Um, they had a great training program, but more importantly, they had a offer letter and a comp plan that kind of would pay my bills and give me a little bit to work with. And so I signed up for it and it would keep me, it would bring me back close to my family who I'm, I'm very close with. And so I started at career builder and, um, you know, that's not a great place to be when a recession hits. <laughs> that's a, that's a very scary place to be, oh, um, yeah. as the, as the housing market and as happened. the job market. 2008 happens. And now when I tell this story, usually I'm going, yeah, during the last recession, because I, you know, who knew I would say that twice so early in my career. Um, but, right. you know, it happens. And so one of the scariest moments of my career at Career Builder and what really started to make me go, okay, I really need to get out of this particular job is we had gone into work um, just before Christmas and had seen a blog post by an HR manager who said, Hey, career builder employees are packing up their boxes. Um, they're being given cardboard boxes and being told to leave. So we all went to our manager. What's going on? Do you know anything? He tells us no. Um, he doesn't know anything. He goes out on his lunch break, break to pick out wrapping paper because we had done like a Toys for Tots drive where we were going to wrap presents during our lunch break. He was going to pick up pizzas with another manager. He comes back as we're all getting emails telling us we're split into two groups, A, group A and group B. Um, and you know, you start, you talk to these, you talk to the people on your team and we're all entry level salespeople. So there's not a huge mm -hmm. distinction between your rock stars and your, you know, less than, less than top performers. We all kind of have our different months. Um, so we're like, okay, something is definitely up. We go to these different rooms and it was literally one of the weirdest experiences in that we were sent to an empty office floor, no desks. No, nothing on the floor. It was completely empty office space. So that's already eerie enough. We get up to the floor and I start to look around and I go, yeah. okay, you're a good salesperson. You're a good salesperson. You've hit quota. You've hit quota this month already. I might be okay. And we start getting texts from our friends whose meeting started five minutes before ours to let us know that they were being let go and they oh. had five minutes to go back to their desks. They weren't even allowed to collect anything beyond their purse or their you know, things that they absolutely had to have to go home. So that was a very scary, that was December of 2008. Um, and at that point I thought, okay, I, I made it through this, but I need to get out of sales. Like this is not where I want to be permanently. Um, and so I had started hearing about Groupon 
And being in the Chicago area, I kind of saw it a couple times as a consumer. And I sent in my first application to them, um, ended up getting a call to come and work for them. This was about a year later by the time I found out or, you know, making it through career builder and, and making it work and everything else. But eventually found out about Groupon, made my way over to Groupon and helped launch the sales, um, the Memphis sales market for them. So basically launched their Memphis city deals. Um, did that for okay. six months, but the entire time I kept telling the marketing department, hey, I really want to get out of sales. Like, it's fine. It pays the bills, but my heart's in marketing because that's what I had actually done in college. I had helped out in a marketing department. and. Um, they finally decided to launch their affiliate program. And when they did, the director of the team at the time asked if that was a marketing role that I would take on. Had no idea what that would mean for affiliate marketing, uh, what affiliate marketing meant, uh, just that it would get me out of sales and get me closer to a marketing <laughs> role. And so I said, yes. <laughs> and that's how I fell into it. And running so, from, my, not necessarily running to. Exactly. I had no idea what I was running to, but I knew what I did not want. I knew the things about sales that I loved. I liked having accountability. I liked knowing what I was contributing to, um, mm -hmm. to my company, but I did not like the constant chase of it all, especially in the middle of kind of some weird economic times. And so it was a very different place to be. And so to your point, ran away from sales and to some extent ran away from that uncertainty to something that I had no certainty of, which is kind of odd and, and ironic of the whole piece. But I fell in love within probably two weeks of, of doing the job. I really started to feel like, okay, this is something that I That's could awesome. really like. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so I was lucky enough. Uh, Rick Gardner was the, um, his OPM agency was the first agency that Groupon was using at the time. So I had somebody great to kind of work with. We had our internal team. We worked with Rick. He set us on a path. And then um, that August, so about four months in, they hired Carolyn Tang Komet. And Carolyn is absolutely, I could not have been blessed with a better person to learn everything I needed to know about affiliate marketing from. So yeah, that's how I fell into it. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I love the story. Uh, so you you started with uh, your German degree, and then you went into sales. Was that was that a scary like leap to take? It, like you said, it's not sort of your traditional like, oh, I I I have a German degree. I'm going to go into affiliate marketing. What was that like? Yeah. So it it wasn't scary at the time, but only because of that bravado that you have as a college student who just needs to get out and pay bills. So that way you don't have a burden for your family. Um, my family wasn't able to save for college. And um, that was, you know, they, they did a lot of work to get me to college. And so I'm very grateful for that. And they helped provide support and co-signing my loans. And so what I knew coming out of college is I don't want to put that burden on them. But the entire time I was in college getting my German degree, which I had a scholarship for, it's part of the reason why I graduated with a German degree versus a marketing degree, because um, it paid for the whole thing. If I, It paid for a good chunk of my college program if I, um, if I had German as my graduating degree. With that said, four years in college, I spent working for a marketing program. And so while I'm getting my German degree, while I'm going through all of these motions of something that I really loved, I'm still very passionate about German, still speak the language to this day. 
But while going through all of the motions of doing that, I was also working it for a marketing program and probably my first really good mentor um, who treated all of her student workers like we were real full-time employees. So she gave us real projects that, to work on rather j- than just kind of a peon student worker job where you would sit there and maybe do your homework or, um, you know, highlight a couple of things and send it back. I was helping proof things. I was helping conceptualize what our content would look like. And eventually I became a student manager for the office where I was able to actually oversee our tour guide program and build handbooks for part of an internship and really became a ground for me to learn how to do what I needed to do. So I kind of got that business experience, kind of got some of that sales experience in in the form of marketing. So when I got the offer from CareerBuilder that said, hey, you're going to get paid, we're going to train you, you're going to be able to be somewhat close to home living in the Chicago area, it was a no-brainer to take that step. And then from there, um, I'm a really big believer in following sparks of joy and believing in your intuition and trusting those things Mm -hmm. out in your life. And so it made sense to just continue on that path and trust that, you know, sales would work out and give me skills that I needed because I think sales, you need that background for a lot of things that you do in life. Yeah, that's awesome. You're, you're, there's these threads of, in your story of uh, my story as well. One of the things um, you talk about accountability, needing to know what you contributed way back when at Coldwater Creek. Uh, we did, uh, they did all the, I think it was the Gallup strength finders, uh, you know, those personality tests. And after yeah. six months of being there, I heard my boss yell, uh, you know, you just yelling down. She was, you know, she was excited to come down and she went through my results. And she's like, I couldn't have, I couldn't have picked the better requirements for what you need in an affiliate marketer. And they were uh, communication uh, people skills, strategy, and the need to know results right away. And, and it sounds like you have a lot of those things. And that's like, for our listeners, if they're wondering what you should look for in an affiliate manager, listen to, to what you, you said in that beginning. And that is that, that need to know right away what your results are and, and what you contribute and being able to, uh, want to work with people. So it sounds like in that college experience, you had a lot of that sales experience and, it was a real natural step. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely agree. When we were talking about, we just added somebody to our team and we um, were looking out on the landscape and talking to recruiters about who we wanted to hire. And one of the things that we that I talked about is I said, you can actually source a little bit. If somebody has sales experience in their background, it's actually not a horrible thing for affiliate. What I didn't say to them is is almost to the extent of, I don't even care if they're that an amazing, they don't have to have hit quota every month to be the right fit for affiliate. Because sometimes I think, and this is what differentiates affiliate versus sales in terms of the personality type and kind of the um, the way that a company can should look at their affiliate team to some extent, is that in sales, it's all about that quota. It's all about closing within that month. It's a very short game to some extent. Now, there's there's obviously some variations of that, especially when you're getting into software sales and some executive type of, of programs and, and products. But when you're looking at just cold calling sales and people just trying to get quota, it's a very short-term game. I'm going to dial as many as I can, and I'm going to close that mm-hmm. deal immediately. But you actually want somebody that can nurture an affiliate too. And so sometimes... Um, 
You want somebody who maybe didn't always reach quota because they were okay saying, hey, I am going to forego closing this sale this month because I know if I talk to this person for a week or two more, I'm going to build a better package for them that is going to actually develop long-term gains for the customer lifetime value. And that is what an affiliate manager does, right? We want to get as many people through the door, but we also need to look at that partnership long-term. It's not just about closing that quote-unquote sale in the month. It's about that long-term relationship and how you keep building on that. And so the salespeople, when we were talking about it, I said, you know, salespeople have uh, the right fit, but it's going to come down to their personality. And if they can build that relationship momentum and they're not just wholly focused on that quick win, and moving on to the next win and conquest. You you have a, I think a five-year-old that uh, you got to have pre-COVID uh, and now you had a baby right in all of this pandemic mess. How different were those two experiences for, for you as a professional, you know, a leader and affiliate manager, they had to be dramatically different. So different, um, right? So our company's uh, maternity leave policies didn't change very drastically. I've, I've been blessed to be at the same company with both children. And so so that component was nice. It's always nice knowing, generally speaking, how your company handles maternity. But obviously, you know, a COVID pregnancy to any listeners out there that may have gone through it, you have my, you know, solidarity and how different it is. There are fewer big events to mark the fact that you've had a pregnancy, but coming back kind of makes up for that little bit of lack of events because coming back was so much easier. My um, parents, and I've, I've talked about them a little bit already, I'm so close to them and they they do so much for us. And so my mom actually watches my daughter and now she watches both of them together and she comes over to our house. And so she comes over in the morning, I get to feed my son, I don't have to rush off before I was rushing out of the door, no later than 6am to drive for an hour to sit at my desk and basically talk to people that are millions, or not millions of miles away, but hundreds of miles away, all of our publisher partners. Um, And now I get to go downstairs at lunch and see my son and get his smiles when I'm having a rough day and I get to nurse him and I get to see my daughter and have lunch with her. And it's just such a better emotional world for me to be in. Because when I do have those days that are just more questioning and more um, difficult, seeing a baby smile in the middle of the day is like the best gift you can be given. So it's great. Yep. Babies and puppies. (laughs) Babies and puppies. We do have an office dog at Zorro that I do miss a lot. We used to get to spend a lot of times giving him walks and stuff. So we did have Henry, but, um, but Jonah, my son is much more preferable, much more cuddly than the office dog. Yeah, totally. No, that's great. It sounds like, you know, the flexibility as a mom, uh, allowed you to, um, you know, do your job and still, still be a mother. And that is invaluable uh, to you. 100%. And so I grew up with a mom who was a nurse. uh, So she picked her schedule so that way she would work nights. So I could be a mom. So she could be a mom during the day. And I always hated the fact that my corporate job didn't give me that flexibility. And now I kind of have that flexibility working from home and being able in this weird COVID world to be with my kids more often great. Yeah. And and what's that like for a professional woman? You know, I, you know, I've had four kids uh, and I think at the most 
I took like two weeks off to help my wife. I, you know, and, and then I got back to work, but, uh, for moms, it's, it's way different. So what is that? How important is that flexibility for your, your career? And just in general. I think it's so important. I think that there, I mean, I'll even talk about just briefly, like how important it was even during pregnancy, because to a certain extent, um, when you're pregnant and there's a point where you don't want to tell people quite yet, but you're starting the, the time that you don't tell people that you're pregnant, typically it's also the time you're feeling at your worst. And so yeah. being home during COVID, um, instead of taking, you know, we were on a big kick of encouraging employees to go for a walk or, you know, take time outside and everything else. And so my walk time, quote unquote, was me going to lay down and put my feet up and just, take in the cold air coming from my air conditioner while I was going through those bits of nausea at first in the, in the beginning of a pregnancy, but then you move it into what it looks like as a working mom. And it's a game changer. I mentioned my five-year-old even, um, being able to have lunch with her every day has become something that is super integral to her day-to-day routine to the point that, I'll probably be looking at some form of being able to volunteer at the school during lunchtime to see if I can pop over there and do lunch um, monitoring to help out. Those are things that I, as a mom, don't want to miss out on. I want to be the mom that's engaged with her children and gets to see them, gets to see their little smiles, see them turn, roll over for the first time, all of those components. But I love what I do. I thrive off of being able to use my brain. I love the fact that my daughter can come in and see what I'm working on and get that real take your kid to work day, but in real time and not in this manufactured way that we put together in corporate America of like, okay, it's take your kid to work today. We're going to play bingo with them. Well, that's not what real work looks like. Sometimes it looks like I'm having a great conversation with my friend. We're talking about work, but they also know that you exist and they're really happy to see you too. That's a much more realistic viewpoint of what work looks like to her. And it sets such a great example for her of what work can look like, that she can still be a mom and still go out there and achieve her dream job and and be meaningful and contribute to a really great organization. And, you know, the cliche of having it all, I think we always make sacrifices for everything we do. Every decision is a, is a cost-benefit analysis but we get really close to having much more of it when we're able to be there for our families and, you know, take that, get rid of an hour commute and all of those little things that aren't necessary to make work work. Yeah. You know, just the hour commute is something I, you know, I forget where we live. There's not much of a a commute, although it's getting a little longer, but just that hour. But uh, you know, what, one of the things that we've done is try to be even before COVID, is to try to be so completely flexible with our working moms so that, um, you know, they don't, they don't lose that earning potential by being away for a significant amount of time or that rung on the ladder because they have to step out and not to sort of penalize them for that. And do you think, do you think COVID kind of opened up like, Hey, we can actually do way more for our working moms and they still kick butt way, you know, they still do their job and do it really well. And we could provide them a whole nother level of flexibility so that, uh, you know, maybe not have it all. I think the have it all puts so much pressure on moms that they have to be 
amazing in all these many different areas and that guys don't have to worry about that. But do you think like the whole COVID experience, like just opened eyes to more people that, Hey, we can be way more flexible to allow moms to be moms and not lose their spot. Yeah. I think, I I mean, I'm hopeful for that, right? I'm hopeful too, that it, it helped with a lot of dads also that were able to come home. So, so we're in a unique not unique position, but my husband works in the public sector. And so he actually has an essential job that he had to go in for after they kind of reopened essential services to some extent. Um, but I think I look at people that I work with, um, the men that I work with, even on my team who or on, on my broader marketing team, who I'm getting to see them also take on more responsibilities with their own kids or getting to see them let their their kids are coming in too they're the because they're working also for a flexible company that their job was able to be at home with i have some co-workers whose wives are also essential workers and so they are the person at home with their kids there might be a nanny there might be you know a babysitter that comes by and helps out but they're still the parent at home that gets run to or that has to take off for the doctor's appointments and I think it's COVID amplified the workplaces that allow for that paternal openness. And that was one thing that we had at Zorro before COVID as well, where we had executive team members who would regularly go around and say, I'm leaving today early. I came in early. I'm leaving early today to go to my child's baseball game. And it was men, women, everybody kind of showing that family is important. You can't do your job well if family isn't important. I think COVID forced everybody to uh, take on that type of a role in a meaningful way and come to grips with that reality. Yeah. And that example you just gave me kind of reminded me of, of uh, how the leaders have to model. So if you're an organization and, and we value that too, like I don't want any employee to miss any family event, uh, like go see your kids play, go to every single thing. But it reminds me, like, I, I got to make sure that I not only do that, but I, I model that out as leaders. We got to call that out. Like, I love how they do that there. Um, but talk to me a little bit about what's it been like as a professional woman in the, in the affiliate marketing industry? What's your experience been like? that may be different from the, you know, generally predominantly male dominated tech space? Yeah. So I think affiliate marketing, kind of building on that topic of of flexibility of schedules or flexibility of calendar and making sure you're mindful of other people. I think already you start at this different level of flexibility that's needed in affiliate and in this space in general. So one, you've got Affiliate marketing needing to be very relationship driven. Um, I think you have a higher propensity. I know, for example, like CJ, I think they have like 65 or 60, upper 60% of their executive team is women, right? So you already have an industry that I think inherently draws a little bit more from a female perspective. So that alone means that you're more likely when you go to a female manager to say, hey, I got to take my kid to the doctor because my husband is great dad. He just doesn't know all of the ins and outs of the cough that my child has had the night before or whatever. She gets it. You don't even have to go through that whole spiel. She understands why you're the person taking your child to the doctor. That's helpful in and of itself. But I think also because as affiliate marketers, we're working with people from all walks of life. We're working with um, people who are 
doing this as a side hustle and a side gig all the way up to people that are in bigger corporations there, but they're across the whole globe and span the whole globe. I think as a woman, knowing that we're working with partners all over the place, I've always been able to come in and say, listen, I'm going to have to leave early. I'm going to come in early today because I have a call with somebody in London, but I'm going to leave early because of that. Or I might schedule, I used to schedule lunches regularly with a partner that lived kind of out near where I live. Um, and how that first started was I would schedule them on days that I knew I needed to be home earlier in the afternoon for whatever event I had going on, which would make my day easier. It meant that I didn't have a commute. I could work from home and meet with my partner and it made itself work out. So I think by nature, affiliate is very flexible. And that flexibility comes because you have more women in it. You have people from these different walks of life. And a lot of times there's a lot of women, especially in the content creation side of things that need different hours to make it work as well. And they understand when you send them an email that says, hey, I can't take this call or I need to leave early because of this, this or that. They probably are also on that receiving end as well. You know, and I think it's great to hear it's such a positive experience. I think one of the things in some of these other podcasts that we talked about and that you talked about earlier is this, you know, it's uh, the need for accountability. The channel is very accountable. And it's, uh, you know, it's very close, to, as close to, I think you can get as a meritocracy, either the things generate revenue or they didn't. And then you add the internet element to it where sometimes, and I've had this in my case, uh, I've had people I worked with for like a year uh, and we worked over email and at the time, different instant messengers like AOL way back when, and we had no idea our gender, our race, our age, or anything like that. All we knew was we were both trying to make each other successful and get through it. And so it seemed to be just an easier way to make things a little more uh, equitable uh, starting, you know, starting out. Uh, and I love to hear that, you know, I've, we, this is the 33rd podcast and we've had these conversations over time and, and I haven't heard many truly negative experiences. Um, you know, from any of my, any of my guests. Yeah. I think that, that, I think when it comes to the people that we work with within this space, I think that there is that equitability. There is that I can walk into a room and say, this is what I've done for my company. And so it's really exciting to other affiliate marketers. I think that there are components um, where because of how affiliate is looked at within organizations, you sometimes have, um, you have that meritocracy that you bring in from affiliate, but it actually isn't always able to be stacked up as an apples to apples comparison with other digital channels or other marketing channels. And that's where all of these great butterflies and wonderful things that happen in affiliate sound really good um, until we actually look at, okay, how are we comparing ourselves to other marketing channels and what happens when we have those broader conversations? Because that's where I worry that the industry, because we're so um, because I think we tend to be a little bit more female focused. And there are so many studies about women with imposter syndrome, which I know I definitely have. And you have um, women are better at advocating for others and not for themselves. Well, what happens when an affiliate marketer is the lone person on their team? They don't have a team that they're advocating for and they don't have, they're not going to advocate for themselves as often. That means that there could be some stagnation in that affiliate marketer's opportunity to earn more or find more opportunities within their organization. And that's what worries me. 
outside of all of those wonderful positives about being in the space that can kind of lend itself to, to a natural um, weakness in the field. So, you know, in our prep call, we talked about a lot of things. And one of them relating to what we're talking about is the, the salary gap. And when um, in every, every year, JEB, we do uh, an evaluation to see uh, where do we fall? Are we paying men and women equally for the same job? And uh, every time we find out there's a little discrepancy, when we really researched it, there's a lot going on between how men and women are raised and the the, you talked about uh, advocating for themselves uh, and one, you know, men ha- are much easier to do that. Uh, women uh, in studies show that uh, they, they're not raised to, to be as their own advocates in a way. And so um, you have you have a great story. You told me a little bit about how that just not impacts you, but um, wh- the women they hire after that. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I think that it's great that you are committing to doing that own survey yourself and, uh, and hopefully you are also, you know, making sure that your team is aware that that's something that you're working on. I think that so many organizations um, run the risk by not being transparent of creating this generational legacy of women who come into leadership roles, um, want to advocate for the people that report into them, only to find out that as they're looking at what their direct reports make versus counterparts that are maybe on different teams or are male and have come come from similar backgrounds, find out that they're actually making more than the women that they hired. And obviously you can never know what what your own peer range makes, but it has to come, it starts from somewhere. And a lot of times I think it starts from female leaders thinking they're making a good wage. Um, There's not necessarily transparency. If you look, I think the other day on Glassdoor, the affiliate manager range was anywhere between 37,000 and 120,000. That doesn't give any insight to somebody in affiliate marketing on what they truly should make, let alone what somebody is making Um, at an agency versus in-house versus anywhere else. And so there's so much discrepancy in our industry. And then you look at the fact that women are automatically more impacted by the fact that they aren't going to advocate for themselves if they've never had a boss that has had the intention or worked for a company that has had the intention like you have to make sure that these inequities don't pile up over time. You could have a female leader who thinks they've given a really great offer to a candidate that is going to work for them. It's within this quote unquote range that, you know, the the hiring team has given. Um, but it actually doesn't meet the it, it doesn't actually match up to their male counterparts. And that only takes one step for it to set somebody behind for years um, until they maybe get to a point where they get a peek behind the curtain and go, oh. Actually, so and so maybe a maybe a coworker shares what they're making, and they realize that they're underpaid. Whatever that looks like, it becomes a very difficult conversation. And then you have to then you're setting up. How do I address this with my organization? Do I need to leave to get a better pay? Why didn't they want to pay me equal to my coworkers? And they may not have even realized it on a on a macro level because they're looking at it just as one siloed bucket of a total spreadsheet of how much they're paying each, you know, how much the roll up for headcount costs. And so 
yeah, I think that it's something we have to be mindful of. Yeah. And that's something that uh, I had never thought of. Like when we did our first analysis, I was like, oh my gosh, how did this happen? And, you know, let's fix this right away. And then, uh, then as I realized, okay, well, it's not intentional. I, I didn't intend to do that, but I still have the responsibility to create a system that doesn't do that anymore. And that's where we came up with the, the annual stuff. But I had never thought until our prep call, it had never occurred to me that once you get one person started in an unequitable position, you're then breeding that essentially, you're creating that for it to continue and to, to propagate. Uh, and then, then the system is the problem. And, and that, re that really blew me away. And so, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you really, uh, um, you know, understood that, that, that if you're a leader, man, take a moment to really look at where you stand in, in this regard. And if you fall short, that's okay. Like we're all going to fall short, uh, but you can very easily put something in place uh, to make a difference. Uh, and, you know, I'm excited for things going forward, especially with the new flexibility that we've kind of learned. And, and I learned I we had our office and I required everyone to come to work and then we gave them two flex days a week. Uh, and I thought we all had to be in the same place. And it is different working remote. You know, building a culture remotely is, yeah. is definitely different. Uh, but you hire great people and they do great jobs regardless of, of where they are. So a lot of eye opening things. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, something I had I had really never and I've never read either. So let's get to some affiliate marketing. We got a couple yeah. minutes left, 15 minutes left. Let's talk about affiliate marketing um, on the prep call. And, and just uh, not too long ago, you talked about how. As affiliate managers in the industry, we make a lot of apologies for what the space does wrong, what the industry does wrong. And, you know, we do that too quickly. We need to start talking about what we do well. So talk to me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I guess I'll start with this. I don't think I've ever walked into a meeting with a paid search team where they have actively said, hey, we know our customers uh, or we don't like to get customers from this keyword bid because we think they're all bottom of the barrel coupon you know, grabbers. Now, coupon usage still happens in paid search. It still is part it of does. the whole ecosphere. The customers coming through are still in that space. And yet, um, I don't think I've ever heard as much scrutiny as affiliate gets for some um, customer behaviors that somehow affiliate marketers are supposed to be the beacon of figuring out how to avoid these customer behaviors and how how could we dare to even dream to work with people that might bring in those customers that we do not want. And I use that tone because there's such a highbrow, um, uh, this highbrow yeah. disapproval sometimes that you feel in the space or that generally sits under the undercurrent. Now, I'm really lucky in, in the sense that the, the company that I work for, they um, took my expertise and and kind of took my viewpoint and let me run with it. And I've been able to prove out the success for my program. But going back to that pay conversation or going back to how people don't feel like imposters and, and have imposter syndrome, it can be incredibly difficult in affiliate marketing because so many articles are out there about, you know, don't, if you want a thriving affiliate marketing program, don't work with this type of publisher because they're always bad or don't work with that type of publisher because they're always going to provide a bad customer or 
this publisher is the best type of publisher to work with all the time for every company. And in my experience, and and granted, there are many more like yourself who have been in the industry much longer than I have. Um, Oh, not much longer. Gosh, sorry, that came out way wrong. Uh, Didn't mean it to to date you. Did you just call me super old? I think I, I kind of didn't mean to, but I hope it doesn't come across that way. I just meant to That's humbly okay. say I have not had as much experience. Um, but my point is that in my experience, the programs that I've managed, the different publishers I've come in contact with, there's no such thing as a specific category of publishers being inherently wrong or inherently right for a program. Every program is unique and every publisher relationship is unique. And if you walk into a room pre-apologizing, especially if it's a new affiliate program or you're going out there to seek the business. If you come into the room cutting down a specific type of publisher group before you've had a chance to understand the business, understand the industry the business is in, and understand how those customers think about the business that you're running an affiliate program for, you're just giving people reasons to start talking about the negatives of affiliate marketing as a whole. I don't know any other marketer that goes into the room saying, here's a list of all the reasons why you shouldn't pay me money. And then saying, okay, but also I can do this, these couple of things good. Like that's not a good strategy. Why are we doing that as an industry? Why do we think that that's okay? So that's just my initial thoughts on it. No, I love that. Uh, In that perspective of, you know, the, your SEO uh, manager doesn't come in and say, well, here's all the garbage that we generated and all the bad stuff. Let's talk about that first. And then we'll, we'll talk about those things. That's super unique. Um, what we've always done is let's strip away the names, the names of the affiliate, the name of the category and, and what you feel about them. And let's just talk about affiliate a and affiliate a has driven this. And what are your key metrics? And here's how they measure against those key metrics. Are they good? Do they need to be optimized? Do we need to stop working with them? And move on from that. What? And like you've said, I've been doing this for a billion years and uh, it's the same argument. And I remember my, you know, my first real big affiliate marketing job was at Coldwater Creek and uh, the affiliate names were getting people hung up. How could someone called X, you know, a silly name, how could that possibly generate good revenue for all brand, you know, and, and that almost, I don't know what the attitude is, but that's, that's there. Uh, do you think that filters into the salary range? Cause like the salary range, like you said, is like from zero to good. 100%, right? And and like, I think part of my theory on that comes from my days at Groupon when, um, you know, we would get people, again, during the recession, that's when I started at Groupon, and you would get people going, well, I don't want people to purchase at my store if they're only getting a discount. And, you know, they would have those, their whole arguments on that. And then we do demographic research and realize people using Groupons, they're not, they're people who still have expendable income. For the most part, they were still people who wanted to go out and spend money. They just didn't want to take a risk on a new business and have it be bad. And I think the same goes for affiliate marketing in the sense that there's this perception of the channel working with 
coupon sites or loyalty sites and they're just closing the sale. So are they really bringing us value? And all you're doing, you know, is really just kind of collaborating on a few deals here and there. So your work, your um, intellectual property of what you know about the channel and the inner workings and knowing, okay, if I actually it's more complex than just a coupon site and a loyalty site, right? And and you and I know this and and others who have done this for a long time know that there's a lot of different publishers you go to for different reasons. Um, so some of it comes down to, is the company viewing it just at that top line negative stereotype? Like we have to have somebody in this role, um, but we're not gonna put anybody really strategic in there because we don't think there's actually much strategic value in it. We're just looking at it as a protection for coupons to make sure that somebody's making sure things get pulled down, whatever, whatever. And I think we see far too often too many junior level people being put into roles at organizations. And we're not necessarily building it out as a real career path within an organization. Um, affiliate, you have to be very strategic for if you want to have a good program. And to be an affiliate, you have to know how search engine marketing works. You have to understand how email marketing works. You have to understand how display marketing works because all of your publishers do all of those things and they have an, you have an opportunity to buy into those different things. And so if you don't understand those, you're not going to provide a very well-rounded program. And so you're almost cutting yourself off at the foot if you're offering it as an entry-level position for somebody just out of, out of college and they get to, you know, they're the they're the coordinator between an agency and the the brand maybe, and so that's how they're interacting with it. And so they only deserve thirty seven thousand. Whereas you have people who are really putting a lot of strategy and work into it, and they're maybe in those upward bounds. And meanwhile, it leaves people who were maybe introduced to it introductory level to go well where do I sit and how do I build a career out there? Because my boss isn't offering me much more than 37,000. They're just offering me this entry level. And why would I want to stay in it when my counterpart in another team is making 10,000 more than I am. And I actually can point to X amount of revenue that my company made because of my channel. There's a lot of components there that I think I'm not doing a very great job of sussing out, but I think we are very much impacted by how nuanced affiliate is and how difficult it is for people to truly wrap around how strategic it can be. Yeah. And there's definitely a theme of when you start with a bad foundation, you propagate that, that foundational level over and over and over again. If you just want to hire someone to do the hands and feet work and you're not going to invest in strategy uh, in your affiliate program, you're going to get what you put into it. And, and if you only value it at $37,000 a year, that's, what you're going to continue to uh, to get out for it. So what are the things that affiliates do well that you see? Uh, and is that sort of talking about those things the way that maybe we start to change uh, a little bit of this perception? Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think that there's a lot of places that, again, it's so much is going to be dependent on who and what your program's doing. I can think back to my time at Groupon and I always kind of laughed about the fact that I was the person that got tasked with working with all the moms because I was the only person who was willing to build a relationship with the moms. I had some coworkers who would kind of go in and say, so mom A, like, what's your five-year plan? And they were like, um, I'm just doing this thing. Now, don't get me wrong. There were some really 
very business forward moms that we worked with. And I'm not saying that that wasn't the case, but they also, we also would have more of a dialogue and it definitely wasn't a business case. where like, can you tell me what your key KPIs are for the next quarter? Um, they were really good at being fanatical about the brand and being, they were users and consumers of the brand and they're great hands on the ground and great at providing an opportunity to talk about why they love it with an audience that clearly values them for what they bring to the table. But at the same time, when we look at, I look at myself as a customer and how I interact with brands that I want to purchase from. And I love using this story because I think it really highlights something that some brands miss when they refuse to work with loyalty partners, for example. I um, was looking, I had bought a car a few years ago, brand new, kind of quasi my dream car, like my realistic dream car. And then you have your like super, super dream car. It wasn't that, but it was my realistic dream car that I bought. So I bought my car, wanted to get weather tech flooring for it. Um, cause I wanted to protect my, my new baby mm-hmm. cause I had that hour long commute. So, you know, it was what I needed to make sure yeah, my car yeah. looked nice for, um, looked at weather tech, looked at the pricing. They're literally 60 miles from my house. So Far enough to far enough to make driving to the factory store kind of a pain, but close enough that shipping should not be as expensive as it is. They're not, they do not have an affiliate program that pays cash back to loyalty sites. So I thought, okay, well, I'm not getting cash back on this. Shipping was gonna be like, I think it was somewhere around like $17 on a hundred dollar purchase. And I thought that's more expensive than I want to pay as well. So that got me looking to say, okay, who yeah. are your competitors? Who's the best person out there that has the closest thing to WeatherTech, but not quite? And that's what I did. I went and looked. And so I did some research um, and eventually said, okay, so this one's kind of okay. Shipping's still great. I didn't do the research on YouTube to say who are the competitors. I didn't do it with content. I went to a cashback site and said, okay, if I want floor mats, what can I find? Found it there, found the competitor I purchased from purchased from Walmart, not from Amazon, because Amazon doesn't offer cash back, purchased from Walmart because I could get my cash back on it and had the order sent to me. So WeatherTech completely lost out on my business, even though they were the originating thought of who I was going to purchase with, because they weren't offering cash back with my preferred cash back provider and their shipping cost was too high. That's where a loyalty partner comes into play and where you can have really strong value in winning a customer to your brand, especially if you're not the major player in the space or you're providing a product that isn't easily found or that's found ubiquitous, ubiquitously across multiple merchants, that cashback comes into play. Then on top of that, the cashback partner can retarget and resell to me on other items that I want. And as a brand, I can go to them and say, I want this type of customer. How often they've purchased, when was the last time they purchased through your link. There's a lot of opportunities there that I think, again, coming with that, cutting off our nose to spite our face, if we label all loyalty partners as only coming in in the last minute, we discount all of that, that part of what I experienced in my own shopping journey. That's normal. That's what people do. That's how people use the internet to shop. And that's where our affiliate partners sit. Yeah, it's sort of like it sounds a lot like when we realize some some for some people Amazon is their internet experience. That is their yeah. search engine. That is their start. Uh, and w- through the podcast, I found out that potential clients are are using Spotify to search 
for to learn about yeah. affiliate marketing. Uh, and so, Crazy. you know, and not just loyalty, but even I go to here for my coupons. This is where I'm starting my shopping journey. And oh, WeatherTech's mm -hmm. not there, but I see this other one that I never heard of looks really good. So there's lots of opportunity. That That's a, a fantastic example. I was just going to say, I mean, I look at it in our industry and in the B2B space, it's even more fragmented because there are fewer B2B retailers who are taking advantage of all of the wealth that affiliate offers. And so we, you also can look in your industry and say, does working with a coupon, does working with a loyalty, does working with content actually provide me as a differentiator between my competitor? And if that's the case too, there's so much wealth of opportunity. Yeah. And when you say you're, you know, don't throw, essentially don't throw the baby out with the bathwater when you say, I won't work with insert affiliate category here, mm -hmm. uh, you miss out on true value. I remember the one example that is super poignant to me is I was fueling up at an Exxon gas station years ago and I was talking literally uh, in my car as I was fueling up talking to a client of ours about do loyalty sites actually provide value? Can I acquire new customers there? And as I'm looking at the pump, I see an ad for you promise. Yes. At the pump. And, and I'm, I'm like, yes, uh, way back when there may have been a time where uh, affiliates didn't generate their own brand yeah. and they didn't have their own brand, but now they do. And if you want to acquire those customers, a lot of times, like in your example of your shopping experience, that's where they start. If not, you know, mm -hmm. if they don't use it, they may start right there. And if you're not there, you aren't in their solution set. You're not in their consideration yeah. set and you lose out on the value. And that is what affiliates uh, do very, very well. Yeah. And I think there's some hubris there, too, where people think they can inherently move people out of the affiliate channel and it's they're always going to move out. And that's not the case either. Like, I don't know about you and your shopping journey, but if I don't 100% trust the brand, I'm always going to opt out of their email and I'll just go to my affiliate partners and look for the stuff that I want to find out about them. Like Having an email program set up doesn't inherently mean that I'm going to go to your email channel and migrate there. Right. Um, and that's what I've experienced and what I've seen in my experience. I'm not sure if that's what you've seen. Yeah, I discount my personal shopping experience. Uh, I don't I don't pay attention to it at all just because I feel like I know too much about how the sausage is made. And so I'm yeah. making decisions based on CPCs for that person. And like so I, I, I tend not to do that. But, yeah, we found the same thing and we've tried. We did an experiment at one of the companies I worked for where we had basically the business intelligence team saying, I know that these customers would come to us anyway. And your customers through loyalty sites, they we already have them. And you'll have to excuse my great Dane in the background is making noise now. Uh, <laughs> we'll try to edit that out. But we had this, we were at loggerheads where we knew in the affiliate channel, the value of these affiliates and the work that they did to create their customer loyalty. Uh, and our business intelligence team said we would have gotten those anyways because of all the other things that we did. So the only test we could come up with is not something I was real happy with at the time, but we had to remove a certain number of affiliates yeah. from the program and then follow. We knew that uh, a customer purchased every two years, every or twice a year for X amount. That's just how they behave. 
And we, we were able to track, the important thing is we tracked at the household level. So we removed those affiliates and we took all the customers that went through them uh, in the past. We knew they were supposed to buy in another six months and then a six months after that. We took those affiliates out and we watched those customers' behavior. 96% of those customers didn't come back when we thought they would. Yeah. So we weren't able to migrate them to another channel. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me at all. And to your point, like I, I use my shopping experience as a quasi litmus only in the sense that, um, I am the worst affiliate marketer ever in using affiliate marketing <laughs> in my day-to-day shopping. Cause I am just a quick purchaser of things. I'm an impulse shopper. And so I look at what impulse purchases work for me, but even in my own impulsivity, there are certain tracks of behavior that are going to occur and you're not going to move me out of that space. If it's a certain price point and purchase, I'm going to start on Amazon because I have prime and it means free shipping. And so now any place I go, if I've got to pay shipping, there have to be rewards to paying shipping. I have to get that back somehow, whether it's you're going to offer me a promo code, you're going to give me cash back, you're going to make me feel super special because you're, um, you know, a, a woman-owned business and I want to give you my money. Like, those are different places that I know my money goes. But ultimately, my path yeah, and my yeah. trajectory as a shopper stays the same. It's not going to suddenly go, oh, you know what? I haven't seen them recently. I'm going to go to my email and see what they're up to. No, I'm going to continue to look on my cashback site. And if you're selling me a sweater and I can buy a similar sweater elsewhere, why wouldn't I get that few extra cents back? Like I still needed that product, but I didn't need that product from you. Yeah. And I think what, when we're talking about the problems with the space getting back to that, when we talk about that, we're not talking about the audience. We're talking about basically our metrics or our fears or our emotions that we have about a marketing channel. And we're not talking about the audience and what you shared about your, your path to purchase. And what I shared about our test, that was a hundred percent audience focused. And that's Mm -hmm. probably the biggest thing that I work with our clients on is let's focus on the audience. What does the audience want? How do they shop? And they're shopping in these channels so let's go there. Let's make sure that yeah. it's profitable and successful, but let's go there. Exactly. And that comes down to being a strategic affiliate marketer and, and saying, okay, yeah. we're going to remove, we know that if you're, if you set the table stakes as they're going to shop in the channel. And that's where I was lucky to have a manager who said, you know what, we're not going to try and take them out of this channel anymore. Let's do what we can with what the channel does and make it run really effectively. And when you take away that conscript of like, oh, it's an acquisition channel. And then the the goal is to hurry up and move them to a non-paid channel. You take that out and you just say, do what you can to be successful for the business's KPIs. Hit your GP, you know, hit your GP, hit your acquisitions, whatever other targets you have as a business. But when you take away that guardrail that says you have to move them out of affiliate channel, suddenly the conversations with publishers become a lot more productive because it's less of a your your specific uh, placement didn't perform because we didn't get X amount of acquisitions. You can actually say, hey, acquisitions weren't that great from this placement, 
But what we saw was a really good retention rate. You brought back people quicker than what we see normally in the business. We want to keep investing in that. So instead of looking at a certain publisher as an acquisition driver, you're looking at them as a retention driver. You're looking at how they can continue to bring quality to the program. And I think that's when it becomes so much more fun to be an affiliate manager than when you're just trying to say, okay, let me grab that first sale. And then, uh, okay, you don't want me to talk to return customers now. Okay, that's great. Like that leaves so much of the channel on the table. I love that KPI too. Did they come back sooner than they would have? Did they purchase yeah. uh, again when when they may not have through through other channels? And and to look at it as uh, as adding value that way. And I know you you guys do a lot with lifetime value uh, and looking at the lifetime value. Yeah, we look at lifetime value. Um, we look at repeat rate or how how quickly they can come back to us if we can get under the, the company-wide metrics. We metric against um, unique products sold. So we are a very product-heavy site. I think the official quote from a recent release was like, we hope to be at 10 million products by 2023. So we are well on our way there. You can imagine with millions and millions of products, our goal is to make sure we're getting as much product coverage as we can. So we look at that number. We are supporting our suppliers and our brand relationships. So we have some affiliate partners where our goal isn't necessarily huge amounts of volume from them, but we're looking at them as a very supplier specific partner that can really help highlight a few of our supplier partners. So within our program, we have affiliates that serve multiple different lanes to hit different KPIs. We still have a program holistic KPI of where we want to see the program grow and the performance we want from the program, but then we're leveling up and strategically looking at each publisher for how they contribute to one of those metrics if they can't contribute to all of them over across the board, which is really fun. Outstanding. Well, it sounds like you run one hell of a program and you're working for a fantastic organization, but thank you so much. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And while it, it really ranged in, in topics uh, for sure, but thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Now, if any of our listeners want to reach out to you and ask a question about uh, anything that we talked about today or follow you socially, um, what's the best way for them to do that? My Twitter handle is pretty much only uh, a generic remnant from my Groupon days. So the best place to go is probably LinkedIn at this point. Awesome. And uh, I will share with your approval, uh, your LinkedIn in the, in the show notes. And so, yeah, thank you so much again there. I took a whole bunch of notes myself. We talked about some great stuff. I really appreciate you spending the time today. And, and I know uh, our listeners are going to find a lot of value from you and our conversation. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate everybody out there. Thank you for helping me get over some of my imposter syndrome. Like this is a big, big deal. Thank you. It is. Well, thank you so much. You were fantastic. And so no doubt there. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. You too. Wow. First off, Julia, thank you so much for joining me today, working through some of the technical problems that we had and also talking about some real hard subjects. Uh, we had a great uh, short conversation after the recording about the imposter syndrome. If you're listening to this, yeah, I suffer from it too. We, uh, so many of us do. Uh, thank you for talking about that. Our, our mental health is so important and we're not talking about it enough. 
So you have, you're not alone in that. Uh, that was a great aspect, but also talking about this pay gap. I had never thought if you bring on someone and you hire them and they're already starting from an unequitable, unequitable position, essentially you're creating a system to propagate that further down the road. And in there, not just in your organization, but also wherever those women leaders go, uh, they're going to evaluate the women that they're hiring in a similar way that they were evaluated. So we really have a responsibility as leaders and business owners and executives to really look at how we're uh, paying uh, our professionals uh, that are women and are we doing it correctly and, and making change. We have the ability to do that. So I really want to encourage you and thank you, Julia, for entering into that discussion and, and sharing that with us. But man, so much other stuff. I love the example of her shopping experience. Uh, and so you got to go back and listen to that again. I hope you you got as much out of it. Um, you know, as, as I did, uh, Julia is a very successful, very smart affiliate manager. I'm super glad to have her in, uh, in my tribe and, uh, have her on this podcast. So thank you so much. So you can definitely go to LinkedIn. I will include that in the show notes, uh, to follow Julia and to uh, engage with her if you have any questions. And if you need any help with your affiliate program, if you have questions about all this stuff, uh, of how to evaluate affiliates and all that, you can just email me directly at gethelp at jebcommerce.com. That goes directly to me and I will help you with any of those things. You can also go to calvinlee.com slash Jamie Birch and set up time to talk to me about any of the things on today's podcast or anything you have, uh, any questions, any concerns you have with affiliate marketing, with your affiliate program, anything like that. So you can go to gethelp at jbcommerce.com, email me there, uh, or go to kevinlee.com slash Jamie Birch and set up time with me uh, directly. Since uh, the pandemic started, I've set aside time to help anyone pretty much with anything. So please uh, hit me up there and thank you for listening. Now, if you found value in this episode, please share it, send it to a friend, share it on Facebook, Twitter, uh, and all that. And we would love if you are enjoying this uh, podcast to leave us a five-star review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, all those places. Leave us a review and let us know what we're doing well. We're also looking for guests. So if you would like to be on this podcast, you can also email gethelp at jvcommerce.com. Uh, and if you have any ideas, are there things you want to learn or people you want me to talk to or topics you want me to discuss on this podcast, you can also uh, comment on our podcast page and you can email me again at gethelp at jvcommerce.com. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you share it with a friend. Have a fantastic day.